0: All right, we are about ready to begin. It's a great joy to see all of you back after our week off. Uh, Let me open us up with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather in your name tonight. We thank you for this book. We thank you for the wisdom that is within it that leads us to the wisdom that is contained in your holy word. And Lord, we pray that as we consider your scriptures tonight and consider the themes in this chapter that you would open our hearts more and more through your Holy Spirit, that we would be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we are going to see about our music tonight and see if anyone can guess what is going on here and what this might be. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's by Samuel Sebastian Wesley. And Samuel Sebastian Wesley was the grandson of Charles Wesley, the great chem writer, uh, and the great nephew of John Wesley, and his middle name, Sebastian, was because of the reverence that the uh, Wesley family felt for Bach. So... That piece is particularly interesting. We're going to look at the words of it at the end of class because it's very resonant with the theme of this fifth chapter of The Great Divorce. And one of the things about it is that there is a big emphasis on the centrality of the Word of God in this choral piece, and it is expressed absolutely beautifully in the music. So I will send the link out, and I would encourage you to listen to it. So let's say our scripture verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine Again, welcome, uh, especially if you're a first-timer either in person or on the live stream or the podcast. We're delighted to have you with us. We keep getting more people each week. And just a couple of words, I know most of you have heard this a million times and could give this part of the talk, Uh, but for the new folks, uh, there are three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you just listen when you feel like it and you don't do anything else, and that is great. If that works for you, that works for me. Glad to have you. Or you can snorkel on the parts that you like, that you think are interesting. You can read the handouts and check out the links in the email. Or you can scuba dive, which means that you read everything in those long emails, that you click on all the links, that you listen to the hour-long podcast links that I send out to you. And it will bless your soul if you do that. Uh, But I also understand not everyone has time or the inclination to scuba dive, and so that is totally fine. But what I would like to encourage you to do, if you're new and you're not on the email list, please Google St. Philip's Charleston and send an email asking to be added to the Lewis class email list, and that way you'll get the things that I send out each week. Uh, Again, about this book, one of the things that's hard, uh, especially if you're wired like me, you want to read ahead, and that's okay. But I would encourage you to read this book slowly, it is a deceptively simple book. When you read and you see that the chapter only has nine paragraphs in it, you can think this is like c spot, run. Uh, But it's not. It's loaded with layers of meaning, and the more slowly you engage it, uh, the more profitable it will be for you. I've been announcing mere Anglicanism for the past couple of weeks, but it's getting serious now because we are approaching uh, where we're gonna cut off registration. So uh, it's pretty close to full. So if you are interested, uh, please do go ahead and register. If you have friends that might be interested, I saw a lady at lunch today that I haven't seen in a long time and mentioned it to her and she had not heard anything about it, which was astounding to me and immediately registered while she was at the lunch table. So uh, if you know people that you think might want to know about this, please let them know. Uh, One of the handouts tonight, someone had asked me a couple of weeks ago, someone else who is perhaps a little bit of a nerd like I am, uh, what might be a good book from each of the people coming to speak at Mere Anglicanism to read before the conference? That was a beautiful question. Uh, so, I, I have made a little list that is over there uh, of books that are reasonable. They're, none of them are really long books, and one of them is actually something to listen to rather than a book uh, that will prepare you and help you to know a little bit about these speakers. And I also wanted to make one other announcement. Uh, most of you know we are in the season of Advent in the church, and there is going to be a glorious opportunity Sunday afternoon, this Sunday at 5.30 because we're going to do an Advent choral evensong just for treble voices. And there's a whole beautiful literature that hardly ever gets sung in this country because we don't have skilled treble choirs like they do in England. And so some of this beautiful choral literature um, which is um, Advent-themed is going to be sung Sunday afternoon, 5.30, it'll take an hour out of your time um, Chip Edgar, our bishop, who's going to be the cantor for it, uh, I would encourage you to come. It will bless you if you do. So uh, just a little bit of review. It's always good, I think, to remind ourselves why we're studying this book. And the first thing that is so important is this book has a beautiful emphasis on eternal life, and it talks about hell as awful, and it talks about the glorious beauty of heaven and why we long for it. Also, in case you've been under a rock, narcissism and pride are rife in our culture today, and Lewis points out the consequences of both of those things in this book. Again, in our culture, truth, the whole idea of truth is uh, completely under attack, and the idea of absolute truth, uh, the only place you will find that talked about is in a conservative philosophy department anymore in academia. But this idea of speaking your own truth is held up in the highest good in whatever journalism or media you want to see. And Lewis, in this book, is showing us decisively what happens when you hold on to your own truth and refuse to acknowledge God's truth. And the chapter we're going to look at tonight really delves into that. There also, in case you didn't notice, is an obsession in our culture with our rights, and what we deserve just by the fact that we breathe, um, that we're entitled to all manner of things. And Lewis addresses this forthrightly in this book. Uh, Also, one of the things Lewis concentrates on in this book is that there are many things in God's created order where there's an either or choice, where the road forks and you can't have it both ways. And then the last and perhaps most important thing in the book is it is a brilliant rebuttal of the idea of works righteousness, that we can somehow be good enough or do enough good things to make God love us more, and then because we're such good people, he will save us for eternity. And Lewis completely destroys that idea, which even as Christians who understand the gospel, it's easy for that idea to seep into our lives, and this book is a great corrective to that. So you'll remember last time, or maybe you won't because it was before Thanksgiving and the turkey drug and all of that, Uh, but in days of yore when we were studying chapter four, uh, the passengers on the bus are greeted by these bright spirits. We hear a dialogue between the big man, who's determined to demand his right and get what he believes he deserves, and Len, who is a bright spirit, but was formerly a worker for the big man. Len had committed murder, but through grace and the bleeding charity, that is Jesus on the cross, he had come into the heavenly country. And the big man is just beside himself because he thinks, how can this be? I always did the right thing. I was a good person. And why am I down there and you're up here? And Lewis offers some really wonderful piercing insights into the bankruptcy of our own efforts uh, trying to attain salvation based on our merits. So there are a couple of themes in that chapter. First, rights and deserving, and that whole attitude are major impediments to entering heaven. And the big man, you can, he, it's just so funny that he is so persistent in this, Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping its chest. I'd gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it. But I'd done my best all my life. See? It's very sad. And the bright spirit models this forgiveness and giving up oneself that are prerequisites for entering heaven. And this man who had been a murderer says, in addition to the man that he actually killed, he says to the big man, I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. I used to lie awake at nights thinking what I'd do to you if I ever got the chance. That's why I've been sent to you now to ask your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one and longer if it pleases you. I was the worst. And this whole idea of forgiveness and the whole idea of repentance are things that have just been lost in our culture. That the whole idea to forgive someone is to empower the oppressor. And so we, we have gotten all sorts of um, baggage around this idea of forgiveness and around the idea of repentance that is profoundly unhelpful. The other thing that Lewis points out in this chapter in a beautiful way is that heaven is a place of great joy and mirth. And I love this description. He in his turn was followed by one of the bright people. Don't you know me, he shouted to the ghost, and I found it impossible not to turn and attend. The face of the solid spirit, he was one of those that wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund, so established in its youthfulness. Mirth danced in his eyes as he spoke. And all through this book, you're going to see that this joy that is just bubbling out like of a fountain characterizes the people in heaven. Also, joy-filled obedience and servanthood characterize heaven, that people find joy there in serving others. And then Lewis makes a beautiful point of talking about the fact that entering heaven depends entirely on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he sets this up so cleverly with the big man saying, what do you keep on arguing for? I only tell you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And then the Spirit says, then do at once ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. In other words, the grace of Christ's love for us through his death on the cross, is the only way into heaven. And then at the end, pride and self-centeredness have no place in heaven. Humility and servant heartedness and good humor prevail. And you see eventually the big man saying, I'd rather be damned than go along with you. And this is, again, we're going to get to this later, but where Lewis says, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And you see this in each one of these characters in this story. So, chapter five. uh, There's a beautiful part at the beginning that we're not really going to talk about, but I'm going to lean into it in a later class. Lewis uh, has two romping lions appear on this beautiful green grass, and they go down the bank to this beautiful river, and then he hears voices. And when he looks up, it's another one of the bright spirits. And this bright spirit is in conversation with the fat ghost, with the cultured voice, who had spoken to Lewis back on the bus. You might remember that description of the man with the cultured voice. So the ghost, uh, the fat ghost with the cultured voice, is wearing gaiters. And gaiters are... uh, an item of clothing that I don't think. Has anyone in here ever worn gaiters? I didn't think anybody would have. Gaiters are a very peculiar kind of garment that are sort of a connection between the top of your shoe and the lower part of your garments, whether that be a skirt or trousers. And they were particularly characteristic of bishops, it was part of the uh, traditional Anglican bishop's dress, and it harked back to the fact that the bishop used to have to ride on a horse to get around to the different places in his diocese. So we'll see a little illustration of that in a minute. So the ghost, the fat ghost is wearing gaiters, and the young spirit, Dick, is naked and almost blindingly white, and the ghost is delighted to see this young spirit. But he says, Dick was getting very narrow in his theological views and coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. Then the ghost says that the gray town, with its continual hope of mourning, with its field for indefinite progress, is, in a sense, heaven, if one only has eyes to see it. The spirit, astounded, says that the ghost is, in fact, in hell, and was sent there for being an apostate. The ghost says no one is sent to hell for an honest opinion, sincerely believed, and that his rejection of the doctrine of the resurrection was heroic. Now the spirit says that all their discussions back in the day were only in accord with what was modern and popular, driven by fear of being out of step with the spirit of the age, and they never actually considered whether the supernatural might exist and might actually be true. I'm gonna refrain from comment yet. The spirit tells the ghost he can begin with a clean slate. He can start all over white as snow and that the gospel is true, that Jesus Christ is in him in this bright spirit and that he's in him with power and that the spirit has come a long way just to show this truth and this love to the ghost. He urges the ghost to repent and believe, but the ghost will have none of it, and he wants assurances that he can have free inquiry and be useful as a theologian. The Spirit tells him he is not going to a place of questions, but that he is going to a place of answers, a place where he will not experience truth, only with the abstract intellect, but where you can taste truth like honey and be embraced by it as by a bridegroom quenching your thirst. And the Spirit sums up by saying, we know nothing of religion here. We think only of Christ. We know nothing of speculation. Come and see. I will bring you to eternal fact, the father of all other facthood. But the fat ghost will have none of it. And again, he says that for him, God is something purely spiritual. And notice he says something, not someone. God is something purely spiritual. The spirit of sweetness and light and tolerance and service. How could anyone be against that? He says he cannot go with the bright spirit because he has to give a paper at the Theological Society meeting in hell on the topic of how if Christ had only lived longer, he would have refined his views in a more liberal direction, and that his death was such a waste, so much promise cut short. And then he wanders off humming the hymn, City of God, How Broad and Far, saying how much he has enjoyed the conversation with his dear boy and found it stimulating and provocative. So it is a very interesting chapter and one that is very relevant today, uh, particularly as you consider the state of academic and theological discourse in our country, uh, really, and around the world right now. So um, here is your bishop in gators. Uh, he's kind of intimidating-looking. Uh, but the, the gators are sort of the the high part above the socks going up to this uh, kind of ecclesiastical skirt uh, that the bishops used to wear. Uh, We can be very grateful that this is no longer uh, the normal attire of bishops. I personally think it's kind of disturbing. Uh, And Lewis is, uh, in fact, picking on this hymn. Lewis, and there's a whole other class to teach on this about Lewis and his relationship to hymns. Um, Lewis loved to worship God. He worshiped God and went to corporate worship pretty much seven days a week from the time he became a Christian until he was too infirm to be able to do it anymore. But he had no patience for bad hymns, um, particularly hymns that had bad doctrine in them. And this is one that he really did not like. And so, It is a hymn that probably the kindest thing you can say about it is that it's theologically muddled. And it was clear that sometimes people are trying harder to get the words to rhyme than they are to express the theology properly. So it starts off this way. City of God, how broad and far, outspread thy walls sublime. The true thy chartered freemen are of every age and clime. Well, it's sort of hard to figure out what that means. I mean, it sounds kind of pretty, but as you go through the rest of the hymn, it never mentions God. It never mentions Jesus. It never really mentions anything that has to do with uh, what you might be in a church for. And when you look at the hymn's author, that's not surprising. Uh, it was a man named Samuel Johnson... He was a Harvard graduate in theology, but he was never ordained in a denomination, mostly associated with the Unitarian Universalist Church. So not somebody who would have had uh, what Lewis would consider a robust and orthodox Christian faith. And part of what Lewis is trying to get at here is that what we sing matters. Uh, There is a uh, an old expression in Anglicanism, lex orendi, lex credendi, which basically means that the law that we speak is the law that we believe, which is the law that's in our liturgy, and the prayer book, um, but it also applies to what we sing. And so one of the things that uh, is a way that bad doctrine creeps into churches is through bad music. And it's not just hymns the contemporary music movement has got just as many theological uh, bloopers, shall we say, uh, as the old hymns. So it's just a reminder from Lewis that this is an area that we need to be careful about. And that's one of the great things about being somewhere like St. Philip's where we have uh, robustly theologically sound music, for which I'm very grateful. So, Part of this, I just thought, was really, really funny. Um, So I'm going to try to read this, and I hope you will catch the humor. Sometimes when you read through it quickly, you don't quite catch the humor. uh, But let's just listen to this point. So the bishop is the one starting. My dear boy, I'm delighted to see you, it was saying to the spirit, who was naked and almost blindingly white. Ah, Dick, I shall never forget some of our talks. I expect you've changed your views a bit since then. You became rather narrow-minded toward the end of your life, but no doubt you've broadened out again. How do you mean? Well, it's obvious by now, isn't it, that you weren't quite right. Why, my dear boy, you were coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. But was not I right? Oh, in a spiritual sense, to be sure, I still believe in them that way. I am still, my dear boy, looking for the kingdom, but nothing superstitious or mythological. Excuse me, where do you imagine you've been? Ah, I see, you mean that gray town with its continual hope of mourning. We must all live by hope, must we not? with its field for indefinite progress, uh, is in a sense heaven if we only have eyes to see it. That is a beautiful idea. I didn't mean that at all. Is it possible you don't know where you've been? Now that you mention it, I don't think we ever do give it a name. What do you call it? We call it hell. There's no need to be profane, my dear boy. I may not be very orthodox in your sense of that word, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed simply and seriously and reverently. Go on, my dear boy, go on. That is so like you. No doubt you'll tell me why, on your view, I was sent there. I'm not angry. But don't you know you went there because you are an apostate? Well, it's just Lewis playing with how utterly deceived you can be. When you go down the path of error, you can get so deceived that you can be in hell and literally believe that you're in heaven. That's where holding on to your own truth will get you. And that is not a good place to be. So a couple of major themes here. So the first one, beware of theology that is overly inclusive at the expense of clarity. And let me hasten to add that the Christian faith is one of the most inclusive faiths in the entire world. We deeply believe that every person is made in the image of God and is loved by God and is called to come to Christ through faith in him. But it is not a faith Christianity historically understood that is a faith just of affirmation and inclusion. It is a faith where we also believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the only way to come to God is through repentance and through faith in Jesus Christ. So this quotation from the book, Adik, ah, I shall never forget some of our talks. I expect you've changed your views a bit since then. You became rather narrow-minded toward the end of your life, but no doubt you've broadened out again. How do you mean? Well, it's obvious by now, isn't it, that you weren't quite right? Why, my dear boy, you were coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. But wasn't I right? Oh, in a spiritual sense to be sure, I still believe in them that way. I am still, my dear boy, looking for the kingdom. Now, part of what we're getting here is Lewis's background and interest in philology. Now, philology is probably not a word that comes up in your day-to-day life very much, but it was something that was near and dear to Lewis and Tolkien and to all of the inklings. And philology is basically the study of language and how language forms and how words come to have certain meanings. So the the meaning of a word is something that is intensely important to Lewis. And so this whole idea that words don't mean what they, on their face value, should mean is anathema to Lewis. So one of the examples that you see of this um, in our culture today, I was reading an article in a theological journal a couple of weeks ago and it was talking about how important it was that the church be profoundly Christocentric in the culture. Now, that sounds like a really good thing. Christocentric means centered on Jesus Christ. How could you argue with that? I would be the first to raise my hand and say, that sounds great. But as you went on in the article, it became very uh, interesting because what became clear in the article was that Christocentric to this author meant that Jesus Christ was perhaps not even someone who had actually lived, uh, but that he was someone who was kind of an archetype of love. So that you don't need to believe that Jesus actually existed or was incarnate or was part of the Trinity, you just believe that Jesus is love and that that can make you Christocentric. Well, that's not what Christocentric means. And that's the kind of thing that would drive Lewis crazy. And that's why he's um, poking at this about uh, believing in heaven and hell in a spiritual sense. So, um, and this whole idea of still looking for the kingdom um, while the guy's actually in hell. Uh, Lewis is showing that his uh, idea of truth has gotten completely muddled. So this may uh, sound familiar because this is part of our introductory verse. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, those of you who are my age will remember how many wacko kinds of religious movements there have been uh, since the 1960s. And one of the ones that I remember really well that had actually a huge following of people, um, and you younger people will probably be very surprised by this, do any of you other slightly more mature folk Remember primal screen therapy? This was one of the great things when I was in college. And there were teachers, you would pay all this money, and you'd go to a seminar, and they would have it at places like Charleston Place. Well, that didn't exist back then, but that sort of nice hotel. And you would pay a lot of money, and you would go stand in a conference room, and a teacher would get up in the front and talk to you about the fact that you had been detached from your primal self and that in order to get reattached to your primal self and get rid of all the stress and anxiety and lack of meaning and purpose, you needed to stand up with the other thousand people in the conference room and scream at the top of your lungs. And this was all over America. I mean, people were paying thousands of dollars to go to these seminars and thinking that this was spiritual truth. And there are plenty, I mean, there are plenty of other things that are just as bizarre as that. And the reason that people fall prey to these things is that God has hardwired us where we are looking for spiritual meaning and purpose but it's like that old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong faces. Uh, We will find things that sound good to us, but they're not true. They're not the gospel. And we turn away to these things, and they're not life-giving, and they ultimately cause despair. So the second thing is beware of church teaching that appears to be faddish, or focused on the spirit of the age. (coughs) So this is the bishop speaking. Honest opinions fearlessly followed, they are not sins. Now, who's defining what sin is here? He is. The bishop is defining sin. Um, That is not part of the way it's supposed to work. He says, my opinions were not only honest, but heroic. I asserted them fearlessly. When the doctrine of the resurrection ceased to commend itself to the critical faculties which God had given me, I openly rejected it. I preached my famous sermon. I defied the whole chapter. That's the vestry. I took every risk. What risk? What was at all likely to come of it except what actually came? Popularity, sales for your books, invitations, and finally, a bishopric. Let us be frank, our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. At college, you know, we just started automatically writing the kind of essays that got good marks and saying the kinds of things that won applause. When in our whole lives did we honestly face in solitude The one question on which all turned, whether after all the supernatural might not in fact occur. We were afraid of crude salvationism, afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age, afraid of ridicule, afraid of real spiritual fears and hopes. And the sad thing is there is case after case after case of bishops and other prominent theologians who have gone off the deep end in this way. And probably the one that is the best known in our time period is Bishop Spong. And Bishop Spong started off as a pretty orthodox guy, but he got farther and farther and farther away from anything that resembled historic Christianity, Um, rejecting the resurrection, rejecting the virgin birth, but then moving on, to say that the atonement, Christ's death on the cross, was a primitive and outmoded construct that presumed God who was an abusive father and committing child abuse on his son by killing him. Well, of course, that sells a lot of books and it gets you onto Oprah, but it does not help lead the faithful in the church. Uh, And there have been many examples across denominations of people that come up with these outlandish things. And one of the really sad things that happened probably, I guess, 25 years ago, there was a big debate going on at the Lambeth Conference in England, and one of the very, very um, progressive, sort of fringe American bishops came out and said that the problem in the Anglican Communion was this group of conservative bishops from Africa, and he actually named some of them and said that the problem was that they were primitive and uneducated. Now, that would be offensive in any case, but the, f- the thing that was ironic is the ones he happened to mention all had degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. So he, he was a little off base with that. But the problem is, this is where pride sends you. When you begin to believe that you are the arbiter of truth, that you are the one who knows better than anyone else, when you believe that your training and your intellect cause you to be superior to all of the received wisdom of thousands of years of Christian witness, that is a dangerous place to be. And it's the same thing that Paul talks about here in Galatians 1 where he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And what he means there is that it's not a different gospel because it isn't the gospel. It's not good news. It's error, and it is leading people astray. So thirdly, Remember that clergy, including this one, of whatever rank are fallible and can be completely wrong theologically. Fallible and can be completely wrong theologically. And there's a great little exchange here with the bishop. Go on, my dear boy, go on. That is so like you. No doubt you'll tell me why on your view I was sent there. I'm not angry but don't you know you were sent there because you were an apostate? Of course, having allowed oneself to drift, unresisting, oh no, this is this is the spirit again, yes. Of course, having allowed oneself to drift, unresisting, unpraying, accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our own desires, we reached a point where we no longer believed the faith. Just in the same way, a jealous man, drifting and unresisting, Reaches a point at which he believes lies about his best friend. A drunkard reaches a point at which for the moment he actually believes that another glass will do him no harm. The beliefs are sincere in the sense that they do not in the sense that they do occur as psychological events in the man's mind. If that's what you mean by sincerity, they are sincere, and so were ours. But errors, which are sincere in that sense, are not. Innocent, And what he's trying to get at here is that allowing yourself to get into this drift, to get caught up in the spirit of the age, to be carried along by all of these different themes and fads and things that are going on in the culture, before long you have become, you have become unmoored from the foundations of the Christian faith. You've become unmoored from the Apostles' Creed. You've become unmoored from the teachings of Scripture. And that when you do that, you enter into kind of this never-never land because there are no fixed points of reference anymore. It's like a pilot when the equipment on the plane breaks. And you've probably read about this happening, where pilots, when that equipment breaks and they're in a cloud, they, they have no idea. They don't know if they're upside down. They don't know if they're flying straight up, if they're flying straight down. And it, that almost always ends tragically with flying right into a mountain face or flying at full velocity right into the ground. It's awful. But that's, that's what happens when we come unmoored from the things that are the parameters of truth. And one of the beautiful things in the ordination service... Which is really uh, moving. When you, how many of you have ever been to an ordination service for a priest or a bishop? Um, if you haven't been, please go to one. They they are phenomenally moving, and the liturgy is a beautiful one. But in it, you are required to pledge and to covenant before God that you will uphold the doctrine of the Church, that you will defend the Holy Scriptures. Um, as this church has received them, which basically means the patrimony of the Christian faith that's come down to us through the saints over the centuries. And so there are a lot of big promises that are made, but unfortunately, um, they are not always kept. And this is not a new phenomenon. You see this with Jesus and the Pharisees. One of the great ironies when you read the Gospels is that the Son of God comes to earth And the people who are his chief antagonist are the good religious folk. And it's so easy to look at the Pharisees and think, well, I certainly if I had been around then, I wouldn't have acted like that. I would have been one of the ones that followed Jesus. And those other people, those Pharisees that are demanding that he kowtow to the way that they do things, I would never do that. Well... Unfortunately, I think it's all too likely that we might do that. Um, Matthew 23 is a great chapter to read. Uh, it is the one uh, that has the seven woes, uh, and Jesus is really on a roll in this passage. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, teachers of the law, hypocrites. Every one of the woes starts off with that, and hypocrite is such a strong word, and I don't know, and again, this is the little philology nerd in me, but the reason hypocrite is such a strong word is that the Greek origin of that word comes from Greek drama. Some of you have probably seen um, amphitheaters where Greek drama was performed, where they might have performed Oedipus Rex or Antigone or something like that. And there are these huge amphitheaters, but with really good acoustics. And the way that those plays would work is when the actors came on the stage, they had these giant masks that they would carry, um, which is where the drama mask that you see like at uh, the Dock Street or the Footlight Players comes from. But they would carry these giant masks in front of them so you would know which character they were playing. And actors might play different parts in the same show, and the only way that you could tell which part they were playing was by which mask they were holding in front of themselves. And they're huge, I mean, life-size mask. Well, the word for that is hypocrite. So that's what the word hypocrite means. It means carrying a mask to try to be someone that you are not. And that's what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees. And this is one of the woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you, remember these are the religious leaders charged with bearing the truth of God, being the heirs of Abraham, through whom all of the world was to be blessed. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, that is, enter the kingdom of heaven, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. Now that is not little Jesus meek and mild. Uh, Those are strong words, and he is addressing what essentially would have been the clergy of the time, and the fact that they have let go of the truth of God's word, they have let go of the truth of the prophets, they have let go of all the things that mattered in return for holding on to their own truths, their own social and political prestige, and their money. So that is a a harsh word, but one that tells us that it matters to Jesus the way that clergy and religious leaders behave. Fourth, test everything against the word of God. And this is the bright spirit speaking to the bishop, trying to entreat him to come in. I can promise you none of these things, i.e. the, the things the bishop wants, having a theological society, being an influencer, um, being looked up to, I can promise you none of these things, no sphere of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents, only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. Ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there's no such thing as a final answer, the free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Trove all things. To travel hopefully is better than to arrive. If that were true and known to be true, how could anyone travel hopefully? There'd be nothing to hope for. But you must feel yourself that there's something stifling about the idea of Finality. Stagnation, my dear boy. What is more soul-destroying than stagnation? You think that because hitherto you have experienced truth only with the abstract intellect. I will bring you where you can taste it like honey and be embraced by it as by a bridegroom. Your thirst shall be quenched. And don't miss here the diametrically opposed choices. Seeing the face of God... Drinking in truth like honey, being in the presence of truth that is like being embraced by a bridegroom versus the free wind of inquiry, whatever that is. Uh, It is just profoundly sad. And what you see here is how imprisoned this man is by his own logic and by the choices that he's made about what he thinks is important. Uh, There's a beautiful verse about this in Acts 17 uh, where Paul has been going from town to town sharing the gospel. And right after he has shared the gospel in Berea, we get this verse. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And that my friends, if you belong to a church, that's your job. I'm sorry to tell you, but it's part of your job to keep the clergy accountable. And if they are preaching things that are not sustained and supported by the word of God, then you need to speak the truth and love to them. Uh, it is how error starts. And I don't think most clergy would ever intentionally say, I've deliberately set out to lead people into error." but they get full of themselves. Human pride is what it is, and you can very easily get off track. So it's very important uh, that the people in the pews, as it were, be well-versed in what the Word of God says. And then this beautiful verse in John 17. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And if you haven't read that in a while, I would commend that to you. It is Jesus' prayer right before he goes to leave his disciples and is arrested and goes to the cross. And so it's sort of like if you knew you were going to die, the things that were most on your mind to pray about to the Lord, and we get a window into that in this prayer. And one of the things that he does is he prays not only for his disciples, but he prays for each one of us in this room, because he says, I pray not only for these who are with me, but those who will believe through their word, which is us. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And sanctify means to make holy. And there is no way that we can be made holy on our own efforts. The only way is through the work of the Holy Spirit using the word of God. Fifthly, absolute truth is real and beautiful. And Christ is the center of all truth and reality. Now today, that is a radical statement. However, for most of human history, that was not a radical statement at all. Even before Jesus, the first part of that statement would be what every educated person believed. Absolute truth is real and beautiful. The Greek philosophers taught that there was such a thing as absolute truth and that it was real, and that it was beautiful. And then Jesus came, and the Hebrew scriptures taught the same thing, Uh, and then when Jesus came, it becomes clear that Christ himself is the center of all truth and reality. And I love the way that Lewis expresses this. The bright spirit says this. We know nothing of religion here. We think only of Christ. Just imagine that. We think only of Christ. We know nothing of speculation. Come and see that great invitation that we hear from Jesus in John's gospel. I will bring you to eternal fact, the father of all other facthood. Hitherto you have experienced truth only with the abstract intellect. I will bring you where you can taste it like honey and be embraced by it as by a bridegroom. Your thirst shall be quenched. And this is so resonant of the story of Jesus with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, which if you've been coming to Rector's Forum, you've heard that taught on recently. Um, But this whole just beautiful invitation to come and see truth like honey, um, the eternal fact, thinking only of Christ, is such a beautiful, powerful invitation. And yet this man just utterly rejects it. And listen to some scripture about this. Uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then from Proverbs, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then this great passage from Psalm 19 More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And one of the saddest things in our culture today is that although we are offered absolute truth that is real and beautiful, and Christ, a relationship with Christ, who is the center of all truth and reality, our culture is determined to blind us to all of this and to give us things that can never satisfy, that can never quench our thirst instead. It reminds me so much of the opening of the the first Lord of the Rings movie, which if you've never watched, please watch it, it's so good. Uh, But in the opening it talks about these rings of power that are beautiful and they, they give you these magical abilities and that they seem to be the greatest thing, and in the overlay of the narrator at the beginning, there's a pause after the description of the rings, and then in this awful voice, the narrator says, but they were all deceived. And that is where we are. We are in a culture that is deceived, where people are literally dying because they're believing things that are not true. Six. Beware of conceptions of God that focus only on love and tolerance at the expense of truth. And notice this is carefully worded, that focus only on love and tolerance. Love and tolerance are good things. What tolerance used to mean was that regardless of what someone believed, you could still be civil to them, you could still be polite to them, Um, you didn't have to agree with what they said, it was not hateful to not agree with them. But where we are now in our culture, um, you are assumed to be hateful if you don't agree with every point of view that's out there. Now logically, that's impossible because you can't agree with every point of view because they don't all agree with each other. But this this idea of um, God that is focused only on love and tolerance at the expense of truth is dangerous and it's one that was predicted way back in Jesus' time. So um, this is the Uh, the Bishop Ghost speaking. These great mysteries cannot be approached in that way. If there were such a thing, there's no need to interrupt, my dear boy. Quite frankly, I should not be interested in it. Truth, that is. I should not be interested in it. It would be of no religious significance. God, for me, because it's all my opinion, my truth, God, for me, is something purely spiritual. Let's forget about that inconvenient incarnation. Purely spiritual, the spirit of sweetness and light and tolerance and uh, service, Dick, service. We mustn't forget that, you know. Now, there's nothing wrong with being sweet and light and tolerant and serving others, but that is not who God is. God exists, God is a person who exists from everlasting in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not a mysterious idea or the force from Star Wars. So, some scripture. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And the point that the scriptures keep making over and over again is that Christ, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this fountain of life that's at the center of all reality, God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, and through his word, and Jesus is the word of God. Remember, John's prologue says that, and there's this intimate connection between God's word and the personhood of Jesus Christ. And when we reject God's word, we can't be in full relationship with Jesus. So, I could go on and on about many of those themes, but uh, that will be enough for right now. But I do want us to look at this, because this is a profoundly hopeful text from Samuel, Sebastian, Wesley that's derived right out of the scriptures. And what I'd like to ask you to do is to read this aloud with me and try to think about it as we read because this is the opposite of what this bishop has been saying. This is the fullness of what the bright spirit believes. So let's say this together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Love one another with a pure heart, fervently. See that ye love one another. Love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible By the word of God, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Amen. Now, I want you to listen to the musical version of that, because I'm I'm not going to do a liturgical dance here, but... uh, the way that the music does this is just absolutely gorgeous and that they love one another. It is this treble duet that is some of the most beautiful music I think is ever written. And then the whole choir comes in singing, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the word of God for all flesh is as grass. The glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. And then there's silence for a moment. And then the organist takes the big pedal that's the pedal at the bottom of the organ that when you push it all the way down like flooring your car, it opens every pipe in the organ full blast. And then he hits his chord. and goes, boom! And right after that, the whole choir in unison sings, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And I defy you, not to get a little misty-eyed when you see that. So I commend that to you. In the midst of all the stuff out there um, in our culture, um, it is profoundly encouraging. So let me just end with this little quotation. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he has abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there, beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the source and author of all truth. That you are the fullness of God. That in you, we see all the fullness of God being pleased to dwell that you are the very word of God, begotten before all time. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty of your truth, to the beauty of the fullness of who you are. And Lord, that we would come and see, that we would taste, that we would be drawn in to that bridegroom's embrace, that we would love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength and that we would be bright lights in the darkness of this age, beckoning others to come to you. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.